Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Netflix's The Trial of the Chicago 7 from writer director Aaron Sorkin and I'm happy to be joined by Josh Brown. Hey, what's up, man? What's up? And for the second trade episode by Daniel Lima. Daniel, thanks for joining me again. Thanks for inviting me. So The Trial of the Chicago 7, as I said, is the newest film from Aaron Sorkin. It's his second one as director after 2017's Molly's Game. It tells the story of the uh, 1969 trial of seven of the organizers of the protest movements that took place in Chicago during the 1968 Democratic National Convention, as well as that of Bobby Seale, the Black Panther member that kind of got thrown into the mix thanks to some uh, prosecutorial overreach. Uh, It stars Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman, uh, who is the leader of the Youth International Party, and uh, Jeremy Strong as Jerry Rubin, his associate, Eddie Redmayne as Tom Hayden, the leader of the Student for a Democratic Society, another different organization that uh, organized a lot of protests. John Carroll Lynch is David Dellinger, who is more of a pacifist in this movement. Alex Sharp plays Rennie Davis, who is Tom Hayden's associate. And uh, Noah Robbins as Lee Weiner and Daniel Flaherty as John Freund, a couple of the other people that got thrown in there. And Yaya Abdul-Mahin plays Bobby Seale, who is the national chairman of the Black Panther Party, as I said. There's a lot of other performances in there. There's Mark Rylance plays their lawyer, William Kunzler and uh, Ben Shankman plays Leonard Weinglass, who is uh, one of their other lawyers. Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays the federal prosecutor Richard Schultz. Uh, Frank Langella plays maybe the most evil judge I've ever seen in a movie, Judge Julius Hoffman. And uh, yeah, this, and John Doman plays John Mitchell, the uh, new attorney general who, uh, due to a grudge against uh, outgoing attorney general Ramsey Clark, decides to bring these charges in the first place after Lyndon Johnson's administration chose not to do so. Uh, I'm going to start with Josh because uh, Josh has a... a, 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 a no, it's not because you're more important, but you had a long history tracking this movie, and it's it been in the works for a while. And I think one of the thoughts people are giving it... Some people are giving the movie credit for this. Some are saying it doesn't really deserve any. Some people think it's being too opportunistic given current events, which is I think is a really stupid criticism because this movie had been in production for such a long time. But a lot of people are just having thoughts about like how timely it is. This movie is dealing with p- police violence, uh, how it treats you know, uh, national black movements, how it treats. I mean, I, I, I quite frankly described it as a, actually I didn't describe it anywhere cause I didn't post any kind of review yet, but, uh, my initial reaction that I think I, uh, quote tweeted my, my tweet about watching the movie with was we need to pack the courts now. Uh, but so, uh, you're, you're dealing with, uh, just t- terrible judges who have been entrenched in power for too long. You're dealing with how we handle protest movements, police violence. There's a lot of stuff that like for something that where the events took place 50 plus years ago, uh, uh, feels actually really of the moment in, in a way it's kind of crazy that a lot hasn't changed uh, as you're watching a movie like this uh, how are you processing that how are you taking that in do you give it credit for being timely or do you think Sorkin just got lucky that he uh, decided to write this movie during George W. Bush's administration and happened to release it five months after our, the country's maybe biggest racial reckoning in more than a decade uh, how, how do you think about this movie coming out in this current moment I know that's a big question but I, did you have an, an initial reaction to just the timely of the events taking place in the movie uh, being depicted in a movie being released in October 2020? Well, um, so, like, the movie takes place in 1968 during, you know, the famous tumultuous Democratic National Convention mm-hmm. when the Vietnam War is being raged on and there's factions. Um, 
in the Democratic Party fighting with each other. Thank generally. you for thank you for saying that because I kind of just like went through and ran through the entire cast without providing that context. But I should have said this: <laughs> these protests were of the Vietnam War, actually, not just the Democrats in general. Though they did want to push the Democrats, and they made point of saying that. Yeah, and so you know, and like people have made many comparisons before this movie had even came out that like you know, 2020 is probably the most tumultuous time in American history since 1968, where you had, you know, multiple assassinations, like Bobby Kennedy, okay, but also, um, you know, the, you know, all coming to a head at this Democratic National Convention, you know? Um, and so, again, like, this movie, I, I had been, like, I first heard of it in the late 2000s. Uh, it was originally supposed to be a Spielberg uh, project with Sorkin writing this screenplay for him to direct and then the writer guilt uh, strike happened and Heath Ledger was supposed to be in the movie and um and he died like like literally I believe like the day that Heath Ledger died was Spielberg going to his like hotel to deliver the script or something like that when it comes to like the you know I don't obviously Sorkin could not you know foresee what was going to happen this year with the George George Floyd riots um but I think like the movie you know, I think like a movie like this does get made because of the Trump era. It'll get it finally gets to Greenlight because of the Trump era, mm. where like, you know, you have like, you know, this anti establishment sentiment in the air and also, you know, the questions of just the rule of law, whether or not it's being upheld or broken and stuff like that. Um, and I don't necessarily feel like it's exploitative, you know, or anything like that. But you know, I, I felt like, you know, it, it, it was fortuitous for the film to come out in the moment it did. Now, what gets complicated... Did it, res is, did it resonate more with you because of that, or do you think that not even doesn't even really matter to how you take this in as a movie? Um, you know, at first I was like, I mean, like, so, like, as you may know, like, during quarantine, I had, like, this high of, like, just watching, like, a bunch of movies, and then as, like, the year has gone on, I've been watching less and less movies, part movie theaters have been closed but also the election has just been on my mind a lot and so i've been just uh, consuming a lot of news related stuff and if i'm going to watch something of entertainment it has been more on the documentary size or something politically related real quick so i just want to note that like i'll get messages at like 2 a.m saying you know i'm watching some election coverage from 1984 and i tell you what and I'm like, damn bro <laughs> i mean probably probably less depressing than watching election coverage now so you're watching some election coverage go watch some go watch some bitches man what are you <laughs> why are you messaging me about this <laughs> No, by the way, the 2016 one is still very hard to watch. Like, for you, it's still very <laughs> I can imagine. I can yeah. imagine. Um, but that being said, like, so, like, you know, this was, like, the perfect, like, okay, if I'm going to watch a movie, this isn't. But, like, slowly, and again, I have, like, I'm making parallels in my mind, you know, like, because you kind of have to. But at the end of the day, I'm kind of just judging it as a movie. And, you know, and I'm, I was excited for it because, you know, like, Sorkin, for me, like, you know, like, there's not, like, a screenwriter kind of like him where, you know, a, a filmmaker that is just primarily known for being a screenwriter and just being as consistent as him. So, like, he has a very high floor when it comes to me. Yet, like, I, I you know, we'll probably get into this later, but as a movie and, like, also the politics of it is complicated because, you know, Sorkin uh, uh, tackling radicals is kind of a weird mismatch but that being said as a movie you know 
I liked it, but also it ranks lower on the, it ranks towards the bottom of the Sorkin uh, feature film screenplays, you know. Sure. Uh, Daniel, I know you just finished and you're probably still processing it, but uh, what did you think, just kind of given everything that Josh just discussed, what, what do you think of the, the, the tone that the movie struck? Because as Josh kind of just hinted at it, it's, it's an interesting mismatch, mismatch, not only him tackling radicals, but someone, and I don't know, I, I think Josh is a decently well-versed in the West Wing. I'm not quite as much, but have still watched it. But I mean, a lot of his stuff tends to kind of view the world with a more optimistic lens, specifically the political climate, uh, than maybe it even deserves at times. And I thought at times this movie was kind of weird. And and I'll, I'll straight up just say I did like it, but I think there was a lot of th- things holding me back from loving it. Uh, do you think that he kind of tackled the subject matter with the right kind of tone? And how, how did it, how did it sit with you as a viewing experience? Well, like you said, I'm still processing it. So mm-hmm. I apologize if I'm a little incoherent or contradictory in what I say. Um, here's the thing. I don't know anything about the trial of the Chicago seven. I, I should say, I should seven. say, I, I should say I really didn't either actually going in. Josh, yeah, I mean, more than us. I knew like, I knew like the, uh, I knew that the democratic convention was contentious. I knew that there were, uh, clashes with police and people beaten and such. I knew that there was a trial involving seven people. I didn't know much beyond that. Uh, I'm not certain that this movie is going to, you know, <laughs> fill in those blanks very well because, you know, like you said, even though it is certainly relevant to the events of 2020, uh, you know, the perspective of Aaron Sorkin is, is, is a little suspect when it's, you know, him tackling radicals, like, you know, the sort of narratives that get drawn up for a movie like this, you know, I, I, I find myself a little questioning, you know what I mean? Like there's, I think, uh, a, a more, there's more, sympathy directed at like the more establishment leaning characters versus the, the the more radical ones and such i'm not sure honestly though um i think in spite of all the political context you know and you know i was going to say subtext but no just the political content in the movie mm-hmm. I, I i i find myself thinking about it more as a this this would have really played well on tnt i tell you what like this honestly t- plays to me more like a uh more like a like a solid enough courtroom drama than a you know an an introspective look at the american political process or something like that by the way and and, and like to your point the tnt uh, courtroom drama of that that is sort of the you know sorkin like aesthetic you know like i feel like a few good men is on tv tnt all the time yeah, no, you might as well call TNT the Few Good Men channel, you know? Like, to this day, I don't think I've ever seen that movie uncut and unedited for television, but, like, I've only seen A Few Good Men, like, on TNT. Uh, I saw it. I got to see it uninterrupted on boot camp, in boot camp, so. <laughs> uh, but also, like, like, and that's the thing with Sorkin, too, is, like, you know, um, he come, like he's sort of, like, the last practitioner of this, like, what was once popular in the 90s, like, these adult the dramas like tackling serious but like also in a very accessible way and like his last directorial effort i would say molly's game which i like better than this i say has also like at the time i had like a lot of quibbles with it and it has a lot of flaws but in the time since i've seen it you know on cable i'm like damn that movie really does play (laughs) on cable and so like you know, I could, you know, coming away from this like five years from now, I could probably see myself being like, you know what, there's some there's some great uh, uh, jams here in this organ day. But it really does, 
as a movie, and we kind of go to like the radical element of it and the establishment thing, because I, I agree with Daniel, but as a movie, it does kind of actually, because I don't think he's really touched this script that much since when he first wrote it in like 2007 as a Spielberg project. And as a screenwriter, if you look at what he was making in the 2000s, like the movie that this would have probably followed had it got made was Charlie's Wilson's War, and it precedes the social network. And I think like if you look at that, I think as a screenwriter in the past decade, Sorkin has gone more and more ambitious Whereas in like Char compared this to like Charlie Wilson's War, which I think is sort of like outside of Few Good Men, like the most apt comparison as like you know here him he here he is ta tackling this historical uh, political event um, that is supposed to you know be analogous to the political climate that we're going through now in 2005 that was the Iraq War and and that's what he was doing with uh, Charlie Wilson like examining the Soviets right. And I feel like, you know, that like that script feels pretty. It's good, but it feels very workmanlike uh, compared to like the more like to something like Steve Jobs, which feels very ambitious, where he com comes up with this like you know dramatic operatic you know framework. Like I'm just gonna do a three act thing. It's supposed to feel like a play or whatever. So like it feels like kind of like compared to things that he's done in the past few years, whether social network and even to a lesser extent, the newsroom, because, you know, as flawed as that show may be, it was ambitious, you know, and had a I've unique... never seen it. You're not missing uh, well, much. It's not a great show, but... I, Daniel, Daniel would hate it, I think. Would I? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Um, but, like, the, the, the thing with that show, what was kind of unique about it in its conceit was, like, you know, it would take, like, you know, news events that had happened like a year or two uh, prior and put these fictional characters, uh, you know, like examining it um, in hindsight. Or Sorkin's whatever. like, here's how the right way to do it would have been. It's like very easy for you to say that now, Sorkin. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for patting yourself on the back for figuring and that here's out. The thing. Actually, that gets to what I'm thinking about, which is honestly like this approach, this kind of old school. I'm just I'm just going to do like a courtroom drama kind of a, approach to the material. It might honestly help it might be to the benefit of the movie because as you just noted um in in his work in in the newsroom which sounds it sounds it sounds super um i don't know how to put it self-involved like i mean i'm just sitting here i'm calling balls and strikes mm -hmm. I'm, I'm gonna tell you how things should be and you get a bit of that in this movie and these are the moments that sort of kind of take me out of it because then i'm reckoning with the fact that i'm you know this is aaron sorkin's neoliberal establishment like, you know, a uh, uh, leaning self well, commenting I, on the politics of radicals in, in the 1960s. I would say this, and you can tell where his sympathy lies. Like, I think he clearly is more aligned with Tom Hayden than he is with Abby Hoffman or maybe Bobby Seale. That being said, I think this could have been way worse. Like, I, I think... Like, I agree. I agree. I, I think... Toes it well enough, you know, most of the time that I'm not, like, too too quibble because he even makes a case for what like abby hoffman as this you know uh um, provocateur like performer and like and you can even see like you know he has a little insight into abby hoffman like where you know it is like you know sorkin the writer um probably has you can kind of respect like hoffman as this you know eloquent articulate like public speaker uses that to his advantage right so 
it could have been worse. I will like you know, <laughs> yeah. Like, I, sorry. Here's the thing. Sorry, can I can I go ahead? Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, off go ahead. Of the, going off of that. The thing is, I think that a part I'm think I'm, the scene I'm thinking about is that confrontation between Hoffman and Hayden. Uh, toward the end of the movie where they kind of just lay out, you know, take it out of the subtext and just lay out the differing philosoph- the, the different philosophies that the two men use in their approach to fighting for social justice and such. Um, and I think the reason why he has that insight, I think it's less to do with sympathy towards Abby Hoffman, although I, I'm, cer- I'm certainly there's some understanding there. But I think it's more just because the guy is like, I, I, I need to, there are two characters and they have these different philosophies on need to in order to create like the kind of movie that I want to make. You know, Sorkin is famous for his ability to write characters who get into very high minded arguments with one another. You know what I mean? And this is his exploration of those two. It's what I mean to say is it's more of a byproduct of his writing style and the way he approaches characters and establishing character than it is him throwing a bone to Abby Hoffman. Yeah, yeah. Which I think, again, if, if, if he's motivated by him being a dramatist, the, works in his Yeah, favor. it works out, because yeah. I think that if he actually was like, I'm going to write an Abby Hoffman movie, I don't think that would have succeeded. And, and then, like, the other, like in that, that scene, it's a key scene um, where Tom Hayden lays out his gripe with Abby Hoffman, which is, like, you know, decades later you're going to be the face of, like, progressive politics, uh, and people are going to think, like, your antics and stuff is what, you know, defines it when it's, you And know, we're going to lose elections. Yeah. And then, and then, like, you know, despite the hard work of, like, activists who are doing the grunt work, you know, uh, like, legislatively and, and so forth, right? And I think that, you know, sums up probably Sorkin's, like, philosophy. To Actually, you'll find this funny, Daniel. There's this clip going on, and t- there's these uh, tweets going on on Twitter where they're, like... Uh, um, doing a clip reel of lines in uh, Trial of Chicago 7 that Sorkin plagiarized himself in his other works. So that same exchange... He does that a lot, yeah. Yeah, like, no, but literally, like, in, like, I think the newsroom or some other Sorkin thing, they talk about Abby Hoffman and they say the exact same shit. Like, <laughs> um, Nothing well, but the hits, I'll say, Aaron Sorkin. I'll say that I, I don't... I mean, I, it's almost I can't help but be colored by what I know about Sorkin's politics themselves. Just in the last couple of years, he's made like uh, critical remarks of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. He had the uh, he had the, the line at some point earlier this year where if they were to ask him to write the end of the Donald Trump's presidency, it would be the Republicans would grow a spine and say, "Your time is up, Mr. President." Like he doesn't have like the most realistic, <laughs> oh grounded view of how things are, and he's probably just not quite as just obviously. I just know he's not as progressive as Abby Hoffman. So going into it, I thought like, "Oh wow, he did probably did give these guys a fair shake." I think these conversations you see them having are really well written and really compelling, and I don't see him like condemning one or the other. I just kind of know him to be more of a Tom Hayden as a guy, so I kind of just knew that going in. Uh, it's funny, though, when Josh was talking—and and like I said, I think those scenes are well written, but when Josh was kind of talking about how this stacked up against some of his other stuff and, and how he thought— it, uh, or. I feel like I've seen this movie get more criticism from Sorkin the director just as much for Sorkin the director as it did for Sorkin the actor, and I didn't really like Molly's Game that much more because of Sorkin the director than Sorkin the writer, but I think Sorkin the writer here probably bothered me more. And we're not doing a spoiler section for this podcast, so I'll just say, uh, I thought I, it's we, a true. We don't have the tri- you can you can read you can it you can Google TV this shit, people. Yeah, yeah, I don't really, and it's on Netflix. It's an easy thing for people to go watch, so uh, you can easily watch it and come back. But 
I thought all the courtroom stuff was really well done for the most part in this movie. I want to talk about the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character because apparently he took a lot of liberties with him. But just in general, though, I thought all that stuff was handled really well. And he, but he loses me at the end. Like I, I was, I was wondering if like this would strike me a little different if I watched it again. So I watched it again, and I and I did some googling after my first viewing, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like that the very last note the movie ends on is not actually. It, it seems like a certain creation. Like it hit me like that in the moment where this guy's going to read off all the 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 names of these veterans. That that scene, I had this, I had like a like maybe like a concurring opinion where like eh, legalese. Um, <laughs> anyway, but I had like sort of like 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 I it, it struck me as false for a different thing. All right, because like in that moment, right, the character you know his active rebellion is reading out the names of the fallen soldiers that that have died since the court has taken place, right. But it's completely undermined by Sorkin, the director, because he puts this ground-swelling music that drowns out the fucking names that you're supposed to, you know, <laughs> be hearing and commemorating in that moment. Well, and, um, and you're just distracted by all lie. these other people standing up and like, oh, here's I'm, the yeah, kids, not, the, here's I'm, the little I'm, son. And... I'm not going to lie. I, my, my parting thought with that at last scene was, um, so are they just going to stand and clap? For all 5,000 names? Are they going to do that? And uh, maybe this is exactly what happened at the trial. I don't know. I don't think so. I tried to look that up. I couldn't find anything about it. In, it, in the moment, it felt like a very Sorkin-ass way to end a movie. That was like my initial yeah. thought. And, and like, like, I was like, hey, great for you, Sorkin. If you found a movie like this, that just a story like this that had the most Sorkin-y ending ever, more power to you. I won't talk the movie any points. But if I can't find any evidence that this shit actually happened, then I'm sorry. Like I'm, I'm going to have to criticize you at least for this note as much as I actually kind of like the rest of the movie. But beyond that, it does play to me. Uh, this is where we get into like the fact that, I, I don't know, like I think Storkin's politics might be the, the, the biggest sore spot of the movie for me in that uh, I see this and, you know, he's reading off the names. And of course, it, it, it's like played as like this, this grand act of rebellion because he's been singled out by the judge as the one guy who's, um, you know, willing to work with the system and this and that. And uh, it just feels so tepid in comparison to even like Hoffman's silly little antics throughout the trial. It, 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 it doesn't feel right. Do you know what I mean? It feels like they're making out this character to be taking like the proudest of stands. You know, he's getting everyone in the courtroom to stand up and cheer for him. He's won over the crowd. He's won over the jury. You know, he wins over the opposing counsel who says, have some respect. And I'm just looking at like, I, I understand the point being made, but it just I think, doesn't I, I think it undercuts. I think it undercuts a lot of what makes the rest of the movie so powerful in that I think, yeah, it, it is very convenient timing that we've had what's been going on in our country this year and maybe got greenlit around the time of Charlottesville and all that stuff happened. And, like, you know, it's not a total coincidence it's happening and it feels so timely. But the, I can't help but feel kind of, like, moved by that. Just that, like, okay, we haven't really made a lot of progress in the in the 51 years since or whatever. But at the same time, it feels like uh, the movie at that point, like, the, the, tri the trial has felt very, very, like, an uphill battle. Like, these guys are just really up against a system that's working against progress. And it's it feels like Sorkin doesn't, like, really, like, trust that his audience is going to appreciate that if he, like, lets us go out on that note. And, yeah, like, these guys end up winning their appeal. But, like, that doesn't have to – it doesn't really matter, I think. Like, I think – that 
it felt like he it felt like he wanted to give the audience a happy ending that really wasn't really in keeping with what a lot of the rest of this story the, the most important parts of the rest of this story so he's going to give them like a, a really cheesy moment and that's on the writing but also that directing like they he, he does it with the music he does it with the, the way it cuts around to everyone else neglecting the names like it's all there and it felt like it kind of created something that just didn't feel in keeping with everything else that came before and that's what really bothered me yeah i'm with you and this is where like you know Sorkin, the director, it kind of, like, why I think it's one of his weaker movies as well is, like, Sorkin, the, the director, kind of, like, kind of gets in the way a little, little bit, where, like, you know, it's not only that, that moment sort of encapsulate like, another aspect of the movie that kind of, like, uh, um, you know, rubbed me the wrong way, which is that, all right, for a movie about Radical, this movie feels pretty safe. Like, it's not a very like an edgy approach to this move uh, this material and there has been like documentaries on the same thing which took you know more innovative edgy like there was this uh uh documentary called like chicago 10 that like you know did like a rotoscope thing of the trial and stuff like that to sort of match the energy of like abby hoffman right and the thing is like the weird thing with sorkin is that like you know i i mentioned before he is this like classicist you know dramatist of like a different era and and it is film this movie feels like you know kind of something like you know he has that auto preminger yeah uh judgment at nuremberg vibe that he's like you know uh uh um imparting onto this material did, did, did auto preminger do anatomy of a murder too wait no no um, uh, he did Anatomy of the Murder. Stanley Kramer was Judgment Nuremberg. Yeah, Stanley Kramer did Judgment in Nuremberg. I mixed the two. Uh, like, and I wanted to go advise and consent, but, like, uh... You forgot who directed it. No, it is Otto Preminger. It okay. was just, like, I was trying thinking the one that's, like, outright a courtroom drop, right? Yeah, and Anatomy of a Murder, like, I think he... I think Sorkin gets a lot of that stuff really well. I actually... I, re, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen A Few Good Men since becoming a lawyer. Uh, and I, I was, I was really worried because I, I, I went back and watched it last weekend or the weekend before, and I was like really worried that I was just gonna like pick it apart. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a Sorkin guy, but like, I mean, I, I recognize his faults, and I was worried. You, like, I, I do not love Moneyball the way everyone else loves Moneyball, only because of the first scene in which a general manager has flown across the country to negotiate a trade, and I'm like. A general manager is going to do that shit over the phone. He's going to do it by text these days. They don't travel to other cities to negotiate trades. This is not how it works. And it's always Why doesn't Aquaman talk to fish? Why doesn't Aquaman talk to fish? Wait, to, to be fair, like, about the... He wouldn't, like, text, right? I know nothing about sports. I know nothing yeah. about sports. But to be fair... That movie takes place in, like, what, 2001, 2003? Right, right. I'm saying it, it would have been over the phone. It wouldn't have been a text in 2001. You're right. Yeah. But, like, it's just like, I'm like, okay, he doesn't know hey, baseball. I was texting people in 2004, so who knows? Okay, whatever. But, 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 but my, my, my point being, like, he actually gets this. Like, you're right, Josh. Like, he gets that stuff pretty well. Like, I mean, and I, I was very struck. I watched Anatomy for, of a Murder for the first time a few months ago, and, like, it might have been one of the best legal movies I've ever seen in terms of just, like, interaction between judge, objecting, sustaining, allowing in evidence, getting in all those nuances. And he did that way better in A Few Good Men than I anticipated. So I wasn't as surprised that I, that was one thing I thought this movie did pretty well, as or as well as you can when you have a judge that's, like, this insane. Yeah. yeah. yeah oh, sorry. Like, I just want to make this one point. Um, like, what I was getting at, though, is, like, you know, Sorkin is probably someone that is studying, like, those socially liberal, conscientious adult dramas from, like, the 50s and 60s that, like, Kramer and Preminger were doing. And he does that well. Like, he does it in a very crowd-pleasing way. Though, to a certain extent, 
that classicist uh, 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 point of view is also what kind of makes them a little bit of a wrong match for this type of material. I actually do kind of feel you on that. Um, I think what you're getting at is that, like, you know, by doing the taking doing this conservative take that recalls, you know, you know, courtroom dramas of the '50s, you know, it's not reflective of the personalities that he's depicting. Like right. he, Abby Hoffman is a fucking radical. You know, he's completely he's completely new. He's uh, an aberration in a court of law, and yet the movie is just a standard. This would play well on cable courtroom drama. What, what do you guys uh, think a version of this movie looks like that isn't as safe? See, like I haven't seen the movie, so the, the, so to be fair, I have not seen this movie. Which but, movie? Oh, okay, the movie you're about to say. Like, <laughs> Charles Carlos, haven't you made it this far? Well, <laughs> like I was thinking, I saw the trailer for that Fred Hampton, do- uh, Fred Ham- Hampton biopic that's coming Judas out. Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, that seems like the that tone of that movie, which seems to be like a little bit like going for that, like uh, like to a certain extent, like that cinema verte. Uh, uh, style that's like using Battle of Algiers and Z. Mm, that and... sounds good. I have not seen the trailer because I'm like, I know I'm going to see that movie opening day, assuming that it comes out in theaters and theaters are a thing. But um, uh, you know, something that reminds me of is um, what was yeah, that movie that that weird. took place yeah. in the Detroit? I was about to say the movie that takes place in Detroit. Detroit. Uh, I, I, as I remember, that was a movie. I mean, no, that was a courtroom drama, but. Uh, played out like the 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 events of that movie like a like a horror film you know what i mean like in this close condensed space and hard to breathe claustrophobic and uh, it was reflective of the energy and i don't know that you have that here uh, yeah. i think that also kind of plays into i you know i hate to keep on ragging on this guy's politics yeah. but um you know in, in the joseph gordon levitt character for example uh, I think he's presented relatively sympathetically as this, you know, the one impartial arbitrator, arbitrator, arbit, arbitrator, arbitrator. Yeah, but yeah, and that's what I was going to say earlier is that like apparently he was much more willing to do the administration's bidding than the movie makes it seem like. And he tempt he tempt that part of him down. Right. And like when you see when you get to Ad- Abby Hoffman's testimony in the film and he's asked about, do you have contempt for this country? And his answer without answering the question is something along the lines of, um, I have I, I have contempt for the people. I, I think this is a good system. And the he, say, he says, I think I think the, insti- the institutions of this country are wonderful things and the people that populate them are. I, something like that, yeah. Yeah, something yeah. along those lines, where the, the the problem is not the structure of our society. It's the people are not acting in the way that they should be. And as soon as they do that, everything will be golden. And I think that it's it's such a – it's if this movie might – this movie might clearly have uh, correlations with what's going on today, but the attitudes in it don't. Yeah. And, and the and the exact line I believe is not a, believe it or not not as much contempt as my country has. No, that's the se- that's his second non-answer. And yeah. then he thinks about it for a while. Jeff Gordon Levitt is like, "Is it troubling that you have to think about this?" And he's like, "I've never been put on trial for my thoughts before." And then the and then it fades to black. So we never actually have to get a definitive answer from Abby Hoffman about whether he has contempt for this country because I think that too. Aaron Sorkin to have contempt for your country is a bit of an indictment on yourself, on you as the person. It reminds me a little bit of 
Do you remember the uh, uh, that episode of West Wing where, like, I forgot which one it was. It might have been um, the guy, uh, Whitford. It might have been Whitford. It might have been the bald one. Um, yep. They have to go to a, uh, like, there's some kind of, like, rally being held against world trade or something like that. And he's reluctant to go in and talk to these people. He thinks they're he's above them. And uh, he launches into this defense of free trade. And finally, one side character is like, you know, you should go tell them exactly that. And um, at the end of the episode, he comes into the White House as if he's like a conquering hero. And they're like, oh, you should have seen it. He completely convinced all these people with very strong ideological bents that free trade is good. But you never get to see what he's actually said to them. How do you, because I, you know, for Aaron Sorkin, it's like, how do you write a scene where this this working stiff in the White House convinces a bunch of passionate activists that their entire worldview is wrong? And he can't come up with that. So he and, takes it out. And also, this also reveals, like, Sorkin's fundamental philosophy, given everything he has ever written, especially the ones that have a more political bent, like the West Wing. Um, and, like, for instance, like, in the West, like, the two things that Sorkin values the most is public decency, that at the end of the day, decency will win over, right? That there are these good, you know, uh, figures of the establishment that when push comes to shove, they will put country above, you know, uh, their party or ideological beliefs, right? Despite mm -hmm. the fact the past four years have showed us that's not true. One and could then, argue the past 30. Yeah. Um, but then, like... Uh, the other thing that Sorkin believes is that, you know, if you write a good speech, right, the power of words, right, you can win over everything. That's, you know? that's my problem with the end. You feel, that, that seems like the message he's making. Just the yeah. power of these names can kind of overcome all the shitty stuff that came before this. And by, the way, the Gordon by the way, the Gordon Levitt character, there's a clear line between his function in this story and like what Ainsley Hayes in the West Wing is, which is yeah. a good Republican that, you know, is fundamentally has these, you know, good moral values. I was going to say that about Kevin Bacon's character in A Few Good Men, too, um, mm -hmm. I, who I thought about, and then I saw that I was plagiarized, as one of the plagiarized things, and I, I, I didn't even realize that as I was watching. But <laughs> my thing was that, like, I actually didn't mind it as much with the Gordon Levitt character. Like, I, I, I see the, the whatever, however problematic it might be to change it to make him more palatable. I get that. But at the same time, I, I feel like I couldn't have sat through that trial again. That just wouldn't be rewatchable if that guy's as evil as the judge. Like, so I almost didn't mind it. Like, I, I, I know that Sorkin, ultimately, his faults, like, I think his heart is in the right place, even if he's, his politics might not be quite where ours are. But, like, to sit, but, but at the same time, so I didn't need that guy to be evil because it just would have been, like, it wouldn't have been that compelling if everyone on the other side was just that evil. I would have been like, okay, like, I know they're wrong. I don't really need to watch this. Like, I have no. I, I feel you, but. But like my issue is less that he's not evil and more just that the way he goes about sympathizing him as a human being is to say he's an impartial arbiter of American justice. He's the one guy who believes that like, you know, this this trial should not be political and this and that. Like, I, 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 I guess I, I also might just have more sympathy for it because sometimes a lawyer just has to do their job. And like I've even butted up, I, I've, I've butted up against that more in my work in the last few months. It's not the same kind of work, but sometimes you just have to take a case that you, you like your client sees it differently than you. And I mean, if you want to call that guy's client, the attorney general, then that's fine. But like I've had a few with like, various clients. I'm not uh, 
I've had a few cases with clients recently where it's like, I just, I'm giving marching orders that like, I just don't like, and I, I, I just got to go with it. And so maybe I, maybe I just felt a little bit more of a connection to that character. Cause I kind of understood that side of it. And I thought it's more interesting to see that kind of, uh, position a lawyer put in that position on film when i've been put in that position recently and so i can see why it might work for me better than it might work for others by the way this is my favorite part of the pod when like josh gives us the uh, secrets to the trade if except i can only say so much because I, I i've never done criminal law and I've, I've never held a government job but i some 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 things are the same you know across civil and criminal cases and th- sometimes like i said a, a lawyer is going to be put on a case where he's going to have to advocate for a position that he just doesn't feel good about and i'm going through that right now and, and uh so maybe i, I although i should point out that in this film, the character uh, doesn't actually like these people. Like he just is, you know. He, I he, think he just the, knows the it's a he just thing. knows it's a stupid uh, he just knows it's a stupid case to take from a legal perspective. But he doesn't actually, like you said, like them. Yeah, yeah. You know what the last thing Sorkin actually did prior to this movie? No. Uh, he he did uh, to kill a mockingbird on Broadway. Ah, uh, yeah. and so. And I remember when he did To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, one of the things that he said um, that both he and Jeff Daniels kind of complained about, which was, you know, they have to sort somewhat update it a little bit, especially because, like, it's coming out in a post-Charlottesville, like, world. And then, like, you know, Sorkin said, like, his ink, he said, like, you know, on paper, like, the Atticus Finch character is a pretty boring one to write for because he's so fucking just a decent dude right like he doesn't have any flaws and then sorkin said like his 20 like his you know contemporary take on atticus finch was actually you know actually if there is one flaw it's the fact that atticus finch you know tries to see you know decency in every in every person he comes across even these like white supremacists that occupy his little community right like he's trying to find something good in everyone even if these people are not necessarily redeemable. And then he's like said that that was like insight, his opening into like trying to make this uh, interesting. Right? It's funny, like four, four, four or five years ago, people got pissed when they uh, published uh, Harper Lee's unpublished oh, man, sequel that like made Atticus. That's the joke. That made, oh, joke. sorry. But yeah, you want to. I was uh, about to say, I was about to say, but, you know what? That still sounds better than Harper Lee's modern take on the character. Oh, so you're not you're not here for the racist Atticus Finch? I was apparently in Ghost Set of Watchmen. I never read that. I haven't read it either. Oh, okay. it just I just I just thought it would be funny. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's interesting because, like, I mean, what what made your what made your mind go there, Josh? As far as like, did it, the way he wrote any character in this movie make you think that like, oh, maybe he liked the opportunity of delving into this? Or I, maybe here's the thing. I think what got it because I said like the two things that like define Sorkin's work is that decency will win over. And, you know, if you write it good enough, like the power of words, right? The power of communication, right? Um, and the thing that I came across, I'm like, oh, maybe, because again, To Kill a Mockingbird, that's like the ultimate courtroom drama of American pop culture, right? And I realized maybe he's like the, the Atticus Finch in this situation. Like what he, he has the flaw that Atticus Finch has, and you can trace that, you know, to like this movie where he's where he's like you know looking for the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character to be more decent than his actual real life counterpart is, and then also you know his you know to something that he said in promotion of this movie, which is you know his fictional like how would Trump like you know 
uh, be removed from office, and it will just be like Mitch McConnell one day just go up to Trump and said, "Your time is done." And, you know, mm-hmm. like, like you know, maybe that's kind of the, the like you know sort of his frustrations with the Atticus Finch is sort of his own shortcomings and also his strength too, because I do think like he does you know this is an ensemble movie. And he does, like, give credence to every single point of view except maybe the judge. But even then, you can kind of see, like, why this judge kind of takes issue. Like, you're running this thing as a kangaroo court. Like, this is a person that is of a conservative old guard, and this is the new guard that threatens his, you know, very existence, you know. So, um, you know, it's both a strength and a, and a shortcoming, this uh, thing about Finch. But, like, to the performances, like, in this ensemble, you know who I thought was actually, like, pretty good? Who, who was best in show? I liked Rylance as Nunsler. The, the That's Lord. weird because you're normally very hard on Rylance. Uh, same. Yeah. same. I, I, it was funny. I mean, it's very weird that it's, like, a very American story. I mean, not that it's unusual to have Brits playing people in these movies in American roles, but, like, these are like very American. This is a very American story, and him. Oh man, Henry Cavill played Superman. Anything is possible. Sure, but I, 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 I honestly, it was almost distracting that I don't think I've ever been as okay with Eddie Redmayne in a movie as I am in this movie. I mean, he's. Uh, I, I don't. Don't, I, don't diss my man. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think he's the best out of all of them. But like, I was almost distracted by the fact that I wasn't. I was distracted by the fact that I wasn't hating him, and I kind of. I'm always going to hold a grudge against Mark Rylance for beating Sylvester Stallone uh, in 2015 at the Oscars. Uh, but like both of them, like I, I surprisingly was cool with. Yeah, like to me they were the standouts. Like Sasha Baron Cohen. So like, what's kind of funny is that like you know that is like one like and I believe Gordon Levitt was also attached to the Spielberg version. Um, but like Sasha Baron Cohen was like that was a Spielberg pick. Like he was always in this project from the beginning. What do you think about Steven Spielberg like going there? See, um, well, because keep in mind, so like it was. When it was about to get made... That was, was before like, Hugo. That was really before Sasha Baron Cohen had done a lot of non-Borat stuff. Yeah, no. It was like in 07, like right after the Borat phenomenon. And I think like, you know, I think what he probably identified is like, oh, Sasha Baron Cohen is kind of like... Like, he kind of looks like Abby Hoffman, number one. But number two, you fuck know... Fuck you attitude. Yeah, that fuck you antics. Like, he's all about the antics, which is, you know... That was a shrewd casting call and I think 07. By, you know, 2020, I kind of just think, like, Sasha Baron Cohen sort of aged out of the role a little bit. Like, he, like, like you know, uh, uh, looked a little bit— He's supposed bit... to be 27, I think, right? He's supposed to be, like, in no, his like 30s. Thir- early 30s. Yeah, early 30s. And Sasha hey, Baron Cohen's 48, 49. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um... So he, he, he looked a little bit too old for this role, so I always found that a little bit uh, distracting. And, if, and it kind of just feels like also, like— kind of doing a little bit of a bit but you know whatever um i think it was good i agree with you that my standout was eddie i gotta I, really I, you know look what is he your what is he your boy from jupiter ascending jupiter ascending and les mis okay two of the greatest movies of the past 10 years i'll tell you what <laughs> love them god love man them but do you stand him in the theory of everything i i do not or fantastic beasts well i think that he's doing as good as he could um, I have not seen the Danish Girl. No, I have. So it's like I've seen Fantastic Beast. I've seen Danish Girl. I've seen Theory of Everything. I have not seen Jupiter Ascending or Les Mis. So maybe I just don't get it. You got to get on that. You got to uh, get on that. One day I'll see Danish Girl simply to support my man Tom Hooper. Oh my god! Um, One of the greats. 
But yeah, I mean, I, I just thought, I thought he was fine, and usually he really bothers me in movies. And I was like, all right, well, I, I, I don't I don't have a lot of points in comparison for the real Tom Hayden, but like I enjoyed him. I I like the comedic stuff that Jeremy Strong brought to the movie. I guess I well, I, I guess now's as good a time as any to ask you, Josh. Did you give any thought to like anyone else you could have seen playing the role of Abby now? See, I, I've, been, I've been trying to think, like, who could have done Because, again, I think in 07, when this movie was supposed to be made, that would have been a perfect pick. It, it's weird. When I picture Abby Hoffman, I think I was telling you guys earlier, I picture Sean Penn in Carlito's Way, who I guess, like, his look in that film, if you look, you know, people at home Googling it, yeah, I think is modeled after Abby Hoffman. I don't know that for a fact, but it would make sense because that movie takes place in the 70s and he plays a Jewish uh, uh, dude, but yeah, like I don't have like someone I I can think off the top of my head okay. that could. I came up with. I was trying to. I, I googled basically Jewish actors, and I was trying to think of guys in their thirties, and I really only came up with two that I thought maybe could work. And and they're, they're both people that have delivered Sorkin dialogue before. My first pick would have been not my not my number one pick. I think my number two pick would have been Seth Rogen, but I think he's maybe just a little too much baggage. You know, I'm not saying he couldn't do it, but I think he's almost too recognizable. And number one, I think if you put a Jew fro on him, because he is Jewish, apparently, Andrew Garfield. Mm, see, I, I, I like at least like with the thing I like about Cohen is that, that antic energy, you know, which actually apparently contrasts with like Sorkin's actual filmmaking style, which is, you know, uh, everything I wrote is perfect. Like, don't improvise. Like, fuck that, you know, um, and like. Cohen is like a very improvisational dude so maybe the movie might have benefited if like you had more of that uh chaos energy but I, I don't know like like Garfield seems more like a Hayden-esque person yeah maybe yeah I don't know I I, I think it's just a hard role to cast because there's not a lot of super Jewy looking guys around and he's a very a, a unique he brings a unique energy and I mean yeah ideally you got someone that's closer to his age but I don't I, I I, I threw those two names out there, but at the same time, I don't really think you can still do better than the older uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, even if the younger one might have been a little more fitting. But those are just two guys I was like, what other Jews are out there? And there's, there's not a lot at the moment. By the way, and this was like the original cast in like 07. Uh, you had Will Smith, like Spielberg cast Will Sp Smith as Bobby Seale, and then Heath Ledger as Tom Hayden, and Philip Seymour Hoffman was also supposed to be in the movie. Do you find it odd that? Oh, I, I actually no. I guess that that was a little before. But you know, it's interesting that w Will Smith actually agreed to that a few years before he turned down Django. He was like, "Yeah, sure, <laughs> I'll I'll play I'll play a, a Black Panther that's been accused of that's already on trial for murder." Then, it, like three years before he turns down Django Unchained for it being like too risky for his brand, which is kind of, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I, apparently Jonathan Majors at one point was supposed to play Bobby Seale. He could have done that. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I would have, I would have, like, if this was like early 2010s, I could see um, Idris as Bobby Seal as well. Early sure. 2010s, sure. Yeah, it's like Luther era. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's good. I mean, and, and I, but I like Yaya Abdul Mateen. I mean, he's really, yeah. he's really, he's really good in Watchmen. Like, I think he'll. Uh, I, I mean, who knows? Like, how many? I, I, a lot of people are just kind of assuming this movie will get like a bunch of Oscar nominations, and I, I, I don't know. There wasn't like there weren't any performances I didn't like. I'd be happy if like a lot of, a, a lot of them got recognized. I, I I didn't realize you were that pro Eddie. I was expecting someone to come in and you're hating on him. So I think it's interesting we're all in agreement on that. So normally I'm on the Eddie uh, shit like. Right? <laughs> 
Well, uh, what, it is great. What did you guys think? So I, I talked to Josh about this a little bit, Daniel. Uh, you know, he mentioned the age gap with Abby. There's like a 27-year age gap with uh, Michael Keaton and Ramsey Clark, and the age Ramsey Clark was. I, I didn't realize Ramsey Clark until after the movie was actually 40 at the time, uh, which is really— Brother, I, I don't know who Ramsey Clark is. I know he's the attorney general because I just watched the movie. And he but was the I, I, attorney general. Like, he was the guy who, like, followed Bobby— like, So Bobby Kennedy steps down to, like, run for— president and also like fuck you johnson and you know my man johnson actually kind of got like a progressive uh attorney general you know uh yeah I, time. I, I would t- i would watch the hell out of a movie about just i didn't really know anything about ramsey clark before i watched this movie either but i was like kind of just looking up these characters and i was curious and i was like oh would this movie have been better with like a 40 year old actor playing him because there's something to that that the younger guy is really that progressive but i actually i watched it again i was like keaton's really great in those two scenes actually and i i, I really enjoyed him so that doesn't actually bother me that much but i would actually watch the hell out of a movie about the 2000s ramsey clark who is like a 70 70- advocating the impeachment right <laughs> Bush? Right, as like a seventy, no. as, as like a seventy-six-year-old or something, like, and then as soon as Bush leaves office in two thousand eight, turns it returns his organization into a let's indict George W. Bush when he's yeah, like, it went when literally, he's like, literally, it was vote to impeach org was the website, and then as soon as he left office, he changed it to indict Bush. Now. And he's like, he's like eighty, he's guy's still alive now, and he's like ninety-two now, but like he was doing that for Bush when he was eighty years old. Like he's like he's got so much energy just to do crazy shit like that. And yeah, I like I, this guy. I, 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 it'd be really fun to watch like a cranky old guy movie who's just like wants to like just totally shit on george w bush i would enjoy that i really enjoyed keaton i that was the point i wanted to make though was like i was a little skeptical like oh would it make a little more sense if you just have like a younger guy in here kind of shaking things up and it's nothing to really lose sleep over because i really thought he was really charismatic and brought a lot to the movie in the just those two scenes like uh i haven't again it were really really early in award season and but it's like uh, the fact that i've even heard a few noteworthy awards pundits seeing like oh you know this movie could have three actors nominated and keaton could be one of them it's like the guy's in two scenes so it's it's, it's it's pretty rare these days for someone to get nominated for like that little screen time, even in the supporting categories. Well, to be fair, speaking of Bush, last time I think that happened was um, Rockwell as Bush in like Vice. I didn't remember he got nominated. Yeah, he probably shouldn't have, but uh, I mean, which he was fine. Weird. Like his Bush is good. It's just he's not in the movie long enough, like for it to be. Well, I've never. I've always been of the opinion that if they show up for a little bit, I think I'm cool with it. Like, uh, what was it? What was the shortest one? Wasn't the shortest one? Um, what's his name in uh, Glengarry Glen Ross? No, um, no. The, the, the wife and network. Uh, yeah, Beatrice. Uh, Beatrice Strait. Yeah, dude, it's been too long. I don't even remember the wife and network. The, so, like, basically, it's the wife that William Holden is cheating on with Faye Dunaway, and like her, her only real scene is just like you know, him confessing about the affair. Yeah, I don't remember. Good movie. Great movie. Anyway. But yeah, by the way, another thing about, like, like the, the um, you know, Sorkin as an, as an aesthetic guy, because, um, you know, the thing about, you know, what's unique about Sorkin's career is that basically uh, um, he's an auteur screenwriter, and this is, like, you know, he's known as a screenwriter, unlike other, like, prominent, like, famous screenwriters like Tarantino or Billy Wilder or the Coens who, you know, are also directors in their own right. Like Sorkin went a long period of time where like his scripts would be directed by some very high profile directors like uh, David Fincher, Danny Boyle, Rob Reiner, um, uh, Mike Nichols. And the thing about it is that like Sorkin, you know, as a director, isn't like on some of those guys level quite yet you know like visually speaking and one thing that kind of like 
bugged me about this movie is like, like, and this is probably like, um, my critique is like, it should be shot on film. I don't know why it's not shot on film. It just kind of has like this glossy like Netflix look that just took me out of the movie the entire time. And also like the protest sequence don't really feel like that intense. Well, that, that was going to be a question. That was a question I was going to have for you guys, though, is that if you I, and I agree, like he's not I don't know. I was just thinking like other people, not necessarily who I thought should have directed this movie, but it was just like he's obviously when you think about those protest scenes, like he's obviously not Fincher. And I, I've had Sofia Coppola on my mind a lot, too. And just because I've been watching a lot of hers in advance of watching On the Rocks or rewatching a lot of them. And like she can move a camera better than Sorkin, too, even if she's like almost just as known as much as a writer, as a director. And is there someone, Josh, that like I almost think the Spielberg version is to be maybe has some of the same issues I have with tone. I don't know. Is there someone that you think should have been, can you think of someone ideal for you to direct this story? Oddly, here's, here's one. Cause like this has, it went through for many hands. So when like Spielberg, uh, uh, couldn't do it, it went to Paul Greengrass and you kind of see the shaky cam version of that. I, I don't, I have no interest in a Paul Greengrass version. Yeah, of that no, no, no. And it also went to uh, Ben Stiller, um, as well. Um, I, did you watch escape at Danamora? I have not. I have not. I've heard good things. It's actually really I, good. I, like, I, I could see... I, I, w- I would be interested to see Ben Stiller's version of this movie after watching Escape at Dannemore. Stiller's filmography is super interesting as a director. But the one that I always thought would have probably been a good fit, and it would be kind of funny just to see, because he's also a writer-director, David O. Russell. The better Scorsese, yes. <laughs> what? No. I had not heard this take when... <laughs> No, you have heard this tape. I said it once in the group chat, and it's the first time I've ever gotten every single person in a group chat to thumbs down me. <laughs> okay, maybe I did see it then, but I, I did not. I, I, I didn't remember that. It's because he he prefers American Hustle over Wolf of Wall Street. And Goodfellas. <laughs> Goodfellas. Anyway, well, uh, I, mean, I don't know if I've ever seen. Has he ever been in a courtroom before in a movie? Who or Russell? Yeah. I, maybe like joy like ha, like i don't remember there's a courtroom scene but that is a movie about like you know this woman's patent but like the thing with like uh, russell is that he has that manic improvisational energy that seems to match like the chaotic like courtroom proceedings or whatever like of this kangaroo court so i could kind of like see his version of this and just would be kind of funny to see his improvisational energy clash with Sorkin's very precise, you know, dialogue. I think that tension probably would be interesting to see. I'm not yeah, I'm sure it, it would work, but I think like the Russell one would kind of fit the Hoffman-esque energy. I, I do think there's something like I think some people have said that this story suits uh, Sorkin more as a director than Molly's Game, which I mean. I don't know. Like I said, I don't, him, the director, didn't bother me as much in this as it did in Molly's game, where he just had no, he had no interest in the same parts of the poker games that I had interest in. It seemed, and he, he, I, he almost moved the camera too much in that, and had voiceovers going too much in that. And here, it's, it, it's, it's more appropriate, I think, where to like kind of jump around in a courtroom, especially when it was the nature of this particular trial, where you have people interjecting way more than they should be, and you can go to them when they do that, or you can get other people's reactions to testimony. Whereas in poker, I want to focus on the face of the person that's trying to figure out what they're going to do with their hand and he really didn't have any interest in doing that uh so i'll say that like i thought within the confines of the courtroom like i think it was fine uh but like like you said i mean maybe there's a way to just make all that stuff outside in the city feel a lot more suspenseful cinematic kinetic than it does 
and Bigelow did that while like in Detroit with like their riot sequences. But like, yeah, I agree. one thing I thought he did good as as a director. I did like some of the editing. Like there's like a thing when like um, you know, like you're informed Bobby, uh, uh, not Bobby Steele. When you're informed about Fred Fred Hampton's death and it like cuts with the uh uh. uh the photographic uh, evidence from the crime scene and stuff like that. I thought that was well. Uh, 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 I liked some of the editing written into the film. And there's this good montage where you know they go back to seeing like all these cops that were infiltrating the 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 movement and stuff like that. Like I thought that worked. But actually, you know who actually would be a good fit for this movie? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of weird that like you know Niner Mean or Daniel said it. Spike Lee. Damn. Of and, course. And if it was, from Bobby Seale's perspective. The Spike Lee trial of the Chicago 7? I could dig that. Hey, Spike, Spike's never done any kind of courtroom drama. That'd be interesting. Yeah, and if, if there's one trial to do it. Who was made for a courtroom drama is Spike Lee. Like, just like... Courtroom the, the, drama and musical. Yeah, <laughs> like someone getting getting on a, uh, on a, a soapbox doing their speechifying, you know. But yeah, like... I could I could see the Spike Lee because that's the other thing. Like Bobby Seale's story, you would think it could be kind of bigger subplot in this movie. Is like you know like you could see like a more edgier film actually seeing it from his point of view as this like person unfairly associated with these dudes, you know, and going on trial and it's treated the worst out of everyone. Yeah, I, I've heard a lot of people say that that they're kind of way more interested in just his story, but he, he just exits by nature of just how it went down. Uh, so I, I get it. But at the same time, I would be totally there if someone wanted to maybe, maybe even shoot part of the intervening months, I guess, like, you know, picking up like from the trial, or even just picking up from the trial, but seeing some of those five months and then picking up like, I don't know when he gets exonerated in Connecticut thing from the Connecticut thing or whatever, but just him and everything that went into him, not, wanting to be represented by those guys like that was really interesting it, it was very deliberate and then it didn't show us this stuff and you were kind of able to fill in the blanks anyway but there's definitely plenty of interesting story there uh i would say yeah i'm trying to think is there any, is there anything else you guys that we didn't cover yet that you wanted to touch on no not really oh out of interest how familiar were you guys with abby hoffman before this again because i i sort of knew about the trial of chicago seven first just because i knew it was like oh this is a movie that steven spielberg and aaron sorkin wanted to make but that's that's how i found out and then like from there you know uh um i did you know like as a kid like a little research on abby hoffman and knew that he was radical knew that he had like killed like not killed himself like had died in the 1980s and also in forrest gump he makes an appearance there where in that scene where like forrest gives a speech at the washington monument and nobody can hear what he's saying or whatever. And, like, Abby Hoffman is the one that, like, um, gets Forrest Gump to say something or whatever. Like, that was sort of, like, my background knowledge on, like, Abby Hoffman for a while, you know? Yeah, I, see, I, 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 I knew nothing. Yeah, see, I only know about him because I came across the, you know, the coup? Yeah. The, uh, the guys, uh, Boot Riley's rap group. By the way, I was thinking when I said, like, listening directors, I'm like, you know, the Boot Riley trials. True, true, yeah. Uh, but yeah, Boots Riley, he, um, uh, one of the albums from the coup, I think the 2002 album or 2000 album was uh, Steal This Double Album. Yeah, based off from, of Yeah, exactly. Out of Steal This Book. And I actually went and I tracked down Steal This Book, and I'm sure that that put me on some kind of watch list. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Um, all right, well, I think we pretty well covered it. I mean, 
I, I, it seems like everyone found you guys, even if you, I, I think I might be a little higher on it than you guys, but it seems like you did find stuff to take from it that you appreciated. And, um, and I liked it. Like my thing is like out of all the, if we discount Malice, the movie I've not seen out of all the Aaron Sorkin movies, I think this is my least favorite. Wait, isn't there only two Aaron Sorkin movies? Oh, you mean movies he's anything he's written to? Yeah. Okay. Anything he's written. I think this is my least favorite film that he's accredited writer on. Um, but that being said, he has such a high floor that I'm like, I still like it. Like, it's still like a B minus, you know, like, uh, um, so again, like, uh, high floor. So like, there's very few things that he can do to make me dislike the thing. And even like the newsroom, which is not good, but I did watch all of it. Oh, I watched all the newsroom too, out of morbid curiosity. And I couldn't help myself as a, a journalist in a prior life, but, uh, yeah, this is this beats the pants off the newsroom for me. Uh, I've never seen Malice. I do like the movie, to be clear. I do like it. I think I'm just in the same boat as JB. Uh, it's not as good. I, I, I don't remember anything about Molly's Game, to be honest with you, or Moneyball. I just remember that I enjoyed them more. Steve Jobs, I think, is really great. Social Network is really great, although you know not as good as The King's Speech. Oh my and, God. Get the fuck and out of like, here. <laughs> and, but but this, I think that it's just his politics are kind of the... It, it, it kind of prevents him from getting as much out of the material as he could but also he might have been the wrong person to really do that kind of take on the material anyways so the courtroom drama thing it it kind of hampers the movie but it also might be its secret boon yeah i, I don't know i i guess for whatever reason even if I, I i guess i said earlier i guess i acknowledge some of the shortcomings of his politics though I don't think they kind of infringed on the movie in a way that really bothered me as much. I, in fact, I thought he was kind of g nailing it for much of the movie. And even if I can acknowledge his politics maybe aren't where mine are, I thought he was grappling with a lot of these issues really well. And I feel like he just kind of lost the nerve to kind of st stick stick it out with whatever message I think the movie needed all the way to the very end. And that really bothers me because I think I enjoyed the ride way more than I enjoyed those last five minutes. But yeah, I still think it's definitely worth checking out. It's going to be in the Oscar conversation and it's an easy watch. I watched it again this morning and it, 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 it really moves, uh, for any fault with his directing. I, I think it's still like a, I think it's still edited together and plays really well. It, we didn't really even talk about the editing, but like it does do a lot of things. It jumps around a lot and I don't think it. I don't think it's incoherent. And I, I feel like, and and he's not the editor, obviously, but I just think it goes to how well made it is overall. That I think the movie does. It's it's pieced together in a way that I think really flows, even if it's drawing from a lot of different points and cutting back to that uh, Hoffman's speeches on the campuses, plus cutting back to the timeline of the actual protest, then back to the court. Like I think it all really works, uh, really effectively. All right, guys. Uh, Daniel had kind of run out of stuff to talk about when I asked him if he wanted to plug anything else as far as oh, things he's been watching. Oh, did I you watch something else you want to you want to tell people well, to watch? No, I didn't. I did not watch a movie. But since we're talking about this, uh, it reminded me of an episode of the podcast Citations Needed, yeah. uh, hosted by I believe Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson, uh, which is a it's two leftist dudes who just you know go over media criticism. Uh, their most recent episode was on the dichotomy between uh, or the gulf between the rhetoric on climate from Democratic leaders and their actual actions. They did a recent one on Oliver Stone, well, I mean, an interview with Oliver Stone about uh, Hollywood's relationship with the government, the U.S. military, and the CIA. And uh, they did an episode a while back about uh, the West Wing and how Aaron Sorkin's politics sort of defined, like, Obama, like, the, the, the people coming into the Obama administration. It kind of helped clarify, according to them, their own outlook on politics and how that's kind of 
dangerous and damaging. Um, it's just a really entertaining podcast for anyone with a sort of leftist bent, and uh, I can't recommend it enough. Anything else you've been watching or listening to, Josh, you want to give a shout-out to? Nah, like, uh, yeah, I, I haven't been watching much. Uh, just been focusing on the election. Actually, no, there's a good book, which is kind of like a very Sorkin-esque uh, uh, nonfiction book, and it's written by uh, an author that he actually uh, adapted, like uh, Michael Lewis, who wrote uh, Moneyball. But uh, the book is The Fifth Risk, and it's about, like, the transition from the Trump administration to the Obama administration, and it's about how, like, all these institutions work and how they're under threat and, you know, that type of thing. So it, it would be actually an interesting Sorkin move. Future. Yeah, the the one thing I'll uh, I'll, I'll shout out because I, I mentioned Sofia Coppola earlier. My next podcast might be on her new movie On the Rocks. So I've been kind of what? Which is good. I, I, I I've not watched it yet, but uh, you liked it. Yeah, I liked. Uh, yeah, because I like the thing with Sofia. She's very like hit and miss with me. Where like every other movie, it worked. Like you know, I was not a fan of the Beguile. Uh, um, but I think the Bling Ring is her best movie. And people really hate on the Bling Ring. Uh, yeah, Bling Ring rules. Like, I they're they're wrong. But On the Rocks was like a nice kind of return to form. You know, like a good slice of life type. You know, it, it, it's it, it's not like her best thing, but, but it's it, it's it's solid. It's decent, and I feel bad that it's probably going to be her least seen movie of all time. Well, it's funny you should say that because, well, yeah, no one really has Apple TV Plus. I do, but uh, so I'm looking forward to it. But I, I Ooh, look at you. He's got well, Apple well, TV. Well, Plus. I didn't because I, 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 I got a new iPhone, and part of the iPhone thing they during a year. Of year of yeah that, that i have that's the same reason i have it. my year's about to be up but i think i'm going to stick with it because i like dickinson that much and it's got renewed for seasons two and three already and and, and i like the little america okay and morning show okay uh but i i wanted to go back and watch other sophia coppola movies because the only one i'd seen multiple times before this year was the beguile because as much as you hated it that might be my favorite of hers uh but and I, I like I, I don't know if her stuff's just resonating with me more because after my first watch of all of her movies bling ring in the um and somewhere were like my two least favorites i rewatched bling ring and and i, I actually i didn't know i think i honestly might have liked bling ring better than marie antoinette but I, I went back and watched marie antoinette and bling ring for a podcast a couple months ago with my friend kayla really liked them both more than i did the first watch and i remember thinking somewhere it's like i don't really care about this sad white guy like this i, I could do without this movie and i rewatched it a couple of days ago and that movie only made like a 1.8 million at the box office so who knows like that still might be her least seen after on the rocks has made the rounds is because people are craving new content right now you can get a free you can get a week free of apple tv and cancel it uh if you really want to watch something but i mean somewhere it's like a movie about depression and i don't think i was sophisticated enough with understanding mental illness and stuff my first round my first go round to really get that and it's really apparent and it's a pretty good depiction of someone that's depressed despite the fact that they might have a lot of material things and it's and it's a really good Elle Fanning performance too like before she had really done a lot and you could tell that she was going to be a really talented actress that could really one of the more versatile act actresses under 25 right now and I uh it's pretty impressive that as an 11 year old she did, gave a performance that good and transitioned to not being a child actor anymore so yeah I, I highly recommend that and um just to watch her stuff if you want to be able to be more well-versed in it and go back and listen to the one I did a couple months ago with Kayla and listen to when we talk about On the Rocks here in the next couple of weeks. So, uh, yeah, I'd just say watch a few couple of movies. They're good. Her first short film called uh, um, Lick, yeah, Lick the Star, it's on YouTube. I watched that too. It's interesting. So it's, I believe it's also – maybe they took it down, but it was on the Criterion channel for a while too. 
It might still be on there. I, someone has to double check. But one thing I, I watched it just so she, after I watch on the rocks, I think having that she'll have I'll watch like all nine things of hers or whatever. If you just count her films and short films and the Bill Murray Christmas special, and that's going to kick Brian Singer off of my most watched directors on mm-hmm. uh, Letterbox finally, which has been like an ongoing goal of mine this year, just to like get him off of there. And it's mm-hmm. I'm, I've, I think I'll finally accomplish it. I think so. I know that there's a couple dudes on my most watched directors that I'm like, man, I'd really like to get them off of there. Like <laughs> Nolan, Nolan, I'd like to, you know, like all the guys that you know, we've all seen a decent amount of their movies, and it's just like Scorsese, um, Tarantino. Like you know, it'd just be nice to get the little normie guys off there. You know what I mean? Being well, there's only say, so many people that get to make as many movies as that, those guys make. So I mean, yeah, but- you know me. Like I'm gonna, I, I, I can find some. Yeah, I can find some. You know, I watch a lot of out there shit. Like I want to get Sergio Martino up there. I want to get you know a bunch of Italian genre directors up there. So I'll, I'll make it happen. For me, it's it's always been trying to get Ridley Scott. <laughs> yeah, he's one that I want to get off there. Yeah. <laughs> like, out of all the like, there's some weird ones on like my thing, but like out of all the directors that's on there, there's like Ridley Scott is the one where I'm like, at no point in my life. Did I ever go through a Ridley Scott phase or like I actively <laughs> thought out to like like go through his filmography? It's just I've done it in, in like by circumstance of just watching a lot of movies. And yes, make- that honestly, that's me with him, and honestly, kind of Scorsese and Woody Allen. Like I never, uh, like you know, people would tell me to watch X, Y, or Z, but it was never like I got to make sure to make a point to see their stuff. But here's the thing. I would say, like, like, like with like Woody, for instance, like his his filmography, it's it's so like because like none of his movies are like really like like mainstream like hits. You know what I mean? Like he's kind of a niche filmmaker that you can kind of divorce his filmography from the rest of like American cinema or whatever, with maybe the exception of Annie Hall because it won Best Picture. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the rest of his filmography, you know, like. I just sort of separate, like, oh, that's Woody Allen stuff. Like, you know, Purple Rose of Caro's, you know, seen as a great film or a good film or whatever, but not that many people, like, talk about it when you're listing, like, a bunch of... You know what I mean? Like, it's very separated from, like... like, And I think similarly, like, Clint Eastwood as a director is the same way, where it's just, like, you know, nobody... We, we just know what are the best Clint Eastwood movies, what are the yeah, worst and you ones. know that he'll... You know he'll come out with one every co- year or every couple of years or so. Right. The um, only one that, like, is in relation to the rest of, like, American cinema, in a sense, it, to the canon, I guess, is Unforgiven. But outside of that, like, you know... Yeah, it'll be nice. It'll be nice. I'm not gonna lie. It's gonna be nice for me to get Woody Allen off of there. You're, you're, <laughs> you're screwed. You're yeah. screwed. You had to... You went through a phase in high yeah. school... Yeah, Woody. My Woody is my most watched director, and I don't think it'd be. It would take. There's not that many people like a top because he's made. Yeah, you'd have to watch like 20 other people who had 40 movies made. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. We, we can all have a problematic fave. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, By the way, so I will say this about Coppola, Sophia. I will say if you're like weird thing about her filmography all her films are about like loneliness and the emptiness of like materialism and consumerism and all this stuff white people yeah and but and being isolated and stuff despite like you know you're isolated but you're like a nice home what perfect like quarantine filmography if there's any filmmaker that was made for this moment (laughs) it was sophia yeah, I, I, Wong Kar Wai too. I've watched a few of his that really kind of resonated in quarantine this year. 
uh, whether it be, you know, happy together or in the mood for love. So, th- uh, you know, I think I'll never be able to get into him because he inspired uh, my nemesis. <laughs> okay, we don't need to. We don't need to have a Barry Jenkins hate test for the second straight episode. I'm tired. Always an opportunity. Even though this is a movie podcast and that's going to be a mini series, are you going to invite Daniel on to cover the Underground Railroad? No, he already got dibs on Lion King too, though. So yeah, <laughs> I'm in. Okay, uh, I'm in. Josh, anything you want to plug your letterbox or Twitter or anything like that before we go? Uh, I guess my Instagram, Brown Film Collective. Right. That's about it. Okay. Daniel, do you want to say anything about your letterbox again, even though you don't uh, watch movies anymore? <laughs> yeah. Felonious Funk, uh, letterboxed. I tell you what, I'm probably going to end up watching something. Oh, well, actually, I, I can't do anything tonight because I got to study for this test. But uh, I, I'll probably pull out. So I'm, I'm going to get back on that train, y'all. You you just wait. I'm going to, you're going to see a, uh, a deluge. I've only ever seen that word written. A deluge of. Brazilian movies from the 60s and 70s. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, as usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y, on both Twitter and Letterboxd, podcast Twitter, uh, Rewind Movie Pod, and Gmail, rewindmoviepod at gmail.com. So uh, send us any feedback there. Like I said, we'll hopefully have a podcast coming up on On the Rocks. I think we're going to uh, revisit the Pierce Brosnan era of James Bond with Fred and Elijah not long after that. Uh, so everyone stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Josh and Daniel for joining. We'll see you next time.